From the mistakes of others, we know not to play with matches, not to mix bleach and ammonia, and not to dive into water without knowing its depth. There's good spiritual wisdom there too, except that when we come to Scripture, we're not simply talking about mistakes. We're talking about sins. And if you can believe it, the Lord has given us in the Scriptures negative examples as warnings to us. And we should heed those warnings. That's part of the function of Amos chapter 4. This chapter that we'll be studying together this morning, in part, stands as a warning for us. For we are able to see the cost of the Israelites' sin. They will be thrust out of the promised land, the land in which they dwell. We should heed this warning because we don't want to be shut out of the promised land of heaven and exiled from our God. Instead of persisting in sin, we should repent of it and return to our patient and gracious God. So, on that cheery but important note, as you turn to Amos chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 13, that's all of Amos chapter 4, there's not a verse 14, uh, but you can find it on page 766 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there to 766 of the Bibles provided, or Amos chapter 4 in your own Bible, let me remind you of what we have uh, learned so far from the book of Amos. After the briefest of introductions on Amos, the, the shepherd and prophet, we dive right into his message. Amos begins by offering oracles of judgment against the, the nation surrounding Israel and Judah. Then he pivots uh, to an oracle of judgment against God's people, both Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah, as you uh, may recall, are the, uh, the northern and the southern kingdoms. Uh, most of Amos' prophecies are aimed at the northern kingdom of Israel. But along the way, the, the southern uh, kingdom, Judah, is regularly kind of dragged into the picture and condemned along with um, Israel. At the time of Amos' ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel is deeply entrenched into sinful patterns. We've seen some of them already uh, announced in the book of Amos. Amos tells us that the people of Israel are filled with greed and that they practice idolatry. He tells us that the people of Israel are guilty of taking bribes and perverting justice and they oppress the weakest and most defenseless in their nation. They are religious hypocrites who practice sexual immorality. By and large, Amos is not speaking to a nation who is concerned with God's ways. And it's Amos' responsibility to tell Israel that because of her sin, she will be carried off into exile. Well, last week we considered the first of three judgment speeches that Amos gives beginning in chapter 3 uh, and stretching through the middle of, of chapter uh, 5. This week we're, we're studying... Um, the second judgment speech in this section of Amos' prophecy. And while each uh, speech covers some of the same ground, each speech also contributes to the work as a whole in a different way. Last week, we saw Amos stress the inescapable nature of God's coming judgment upon His people. And this week, we'll see that Amos communicates that God's past chastisements upon His people, that He placed upon His people, was for the purpose of calling them back to Himself. That's what Amos chapter 4 is about. God has chastised His people in the past for the purpose of encouraging their repentance so that they would return to Him. We're going to study Amos chapter 4 verses 1 through 13 under, in three sections under three headings. 
First, the call to the cattle. Second, the purpose and the punishment. And third, the meeting with the maker. And I'll repeat each point as we're uh, moving along. Let's begin uh, with our first section in point, the call to the cattle. The call to the cattle. Uh, And as we consider this point, read Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Read Amos chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, you who are in the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every day, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Well, I trust that it's not hard for you to see why I entitled this point Call to the Cattle. Um, Amos calls the cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria to hear right there in verse 1. This command to hear is the same command with which he opened chapter 3. Clearly the ancient people of God had a hearing problem. Uh, According to Amos chapter 2 verse 4, Judah rejected the law of the Lord and did not keep his statutes. In other words, Judah refused to hear and obey God's word. This is clearly true for the northern kingdom of Israel too. All of Israel's violations that are outlined in chapters 2 and 3 are the fruit of failing to hear and heed God. God's people had stuffed up their ears and refused to hear. But Amos exhorts and commands them, yet again, to hear this word. Well, who are these cows of Bashan that Amos is calling to? Well, this is where, as a preacher, I'd like to stay out of hot water. Uh, But apparently, I need to go ahead and jump right in. So, uh, the cows of Bashan, they appear to be the wealthy and elite women of Samaria. Bashan was a place where cattle would be led to graze. uh, And in fact, um, the the actual cattle of that region were well known for their considerable girth. Uh, That these cows of Bashan are located on the mountain of Samaria tells us something too. Uh, We need to remember that Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. It was a place of wealth and power during Amos' time as a prophet. So Amos calls these women cows because of their desire, might even say their appetite, to feed themselves through the oppression of the poor and needy. These wealthy women of Samaria are so drunk with their sinful self-indulgence that they also reverse the normal household roles, calling to their husbands to do frankly, what they would have ordinarily done in that society. These demanding damsels are not in distress, and yet their actions and attitudes point to a problem with the men of Samaria. Though Amos does not explicitly mention the husbands of these demanding damsels, we know that their absence itself actually tells us something about the exercise of their authority, or really lack thereof. Uh, The men of Samaria have clearly followed Adam's lead in abdicating authority and responsibility to lead their families well. Not only have the men of Samaria failed to call their wives and families to be content by silently giving them license for licentiousness, but they have also failed to teach them to care for others 
these husbands failed to teach their wives to care for others. While these women are certainly responsible for their own sins of oppressing the poor and crushing the needy, their husbands have clearly neither taught them nor led them to sacrificially serve others around them. The, the cows of Bashan view, the, view others around them as means to an end instead of people made in God's image. Instead of viewing the poor and the needy as those God called them to extend generosity and care to, the cows of Bashan view them as a bridge to cross the creek in order to get to the next patch of grass. To get what they want, they would step on others, abuse, use, lose them once they got what they wanted. The, the women of Samaria used individuals as, as instruments. They did not consider their true humanity. And so they degraded, disregarded others to get what they desired. Like the ancient women of Samaria, do we oppress the poor and needy? Uh, there, there may very well be ways that we do. And ultimately, such oppression stems from either a conscious or subconscious disposition and attitude concerning ourselves and a disposition and attitude toward others. As I said just a minute ago, the women of Samaria, they treated individuals as instruments. Do, do we do this sometimes? Um, when we're in line at McDonald's or Starbucks or sitting down at the Cracker Barrel or the Olive Garden or wherever, whatever restaurant we, we like to go to, how do we treat those who are serving us? How do we view them? Do we view them as people made in the image of God? Do we view them as those who are in need of grace and mercy? Or do we view them as means to an end? Do we view them as an obstacle between us and our grande, no whip, shaken but not stirred, pumpkin spice latte with room for pride? Brothers and sisters, we... Are we patient and understanding with others? Every person, every person has great value in God's sight, not because of what they can get us, but because they reflect Him. Our interaction with these image bearers, indeed all image bearers, ought to display this knowledge that God treasures and values those who are made in His image. Well, the Lord has called to the cattle. And in verse 2, we see the Lord make a startling oath to these cattle. These cattle are going to be taken away by hooks. And not just one of them, or two of them, but every last one of them. This doesn't just apply to the women of the northern kingdom, it applies to the men too. The people of Israel will be forcefully dragged away where they do not want to go. As a fish... A fish does not want to get caught, but once the hook is set, all the resistance that a fish can muster against the divine angler is useless. The people of Israel will all be taken away and be cast out into Harmon, as we see in verse 3. And this is closely connected to God's promise in Amos chapter 3, verse 11, where we're told that an adversary would surround Israel and conquer them. We learn from Amos chapter 3, verse 11, that Israel's defenses would be broken and it's through those breaches, those broken uh, places in Israel's defenses, that they would be carried away. And here again we're seeing 
that God is promising to remove His people from the promised land. Those who lived in luxury and ordered others around would have their fortunes reversed. Instead, they will now be ordered around and treated as objects to possess and demand service from. God calls His people to hear this word of promised punishment. But He also calls them to hear another word in verses 4 and 5. If you can't tell, this is a sarcastic call from God. Through sarcasm, God is again pointing out more of the reasons why the people of Israel will be punished and carried off into exile. Sure, Israel has worshipped. Um, sure, they have brought sacrifices to the temple every morning and their tithes every three days. Sure, they have uh, offered thanksgiving sacrifices and free will offerings. They have done all sorts of religious things. But these were empty rituals for Israel. They were empty rituals because their hearts were empty of love toward God and their neighbor. Uh, we know the emptiness of their hearts by how they treated the poor and needy. We know the emptiness of their hearts toward God because they also had other idols and false gods on the side. God wasn't pleased by what they did because their hearts weren't humbled before Him. And the same is true for us. We must be careful not to assume that our church attendance or church membership or our baptism or our participation, participation in small groups or serving as a deacon or as an elder is what matters most to God. Those things are not inconsequential or unimportant, but they are not the ground of our salvation. And children, I want you to understand that this same truth applies to you too. Children, simply because you've been born into a Christian home or uh, come to church and attend Sunday school, simply because you're part of a youth group or any other Christian activity that you participate in does not make you a Christian. What makes a person a Christian is their repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Children, youth, teenagers, young adults, uh, let me encourage you to talk with your parents this afternoon or this evening about what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ and how one truly becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. That would be a good and important conversation to have with your parents this afternoon or this evening. The people of Israel were depending upon all of their outward rituals and practices. But what God looks upon is the heart. Brothers and sisters, are, we, are our hearts broken over our sin and contrite before God? Are we keenly aware that we have done nothing to earn God's favor? And that we're actually deserving of being dragged away and exiled from God's loving presence because of our sin? If you are here today and you are banking your life and your salvation on the fact that you were baptized or any other thing that you do as a Christian, I'm here today to tell you that you need to bank your life on the one who was baptized under the wrath of God on the cross and raised victoriously from the grave. Your only hope is not in what you have done, but in what Jesus has done for you. At its best, that's what baptism proclaims, that we are part... Um, we, we are banking our lives on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and His work for us. That we're placing our whole hope in Him. Now Amos has spoken of worship. And it's clear that worship is not unimportant to God. It's not unimportant to God now. 
as we as a Christian church participate in worship. We gather here each and every week and we do so because we are commanded to do so. What is most important in our worship is that we're depending upon Christ our Savior. And God is to be at the center of our worship. When we decentralize Him like the people of Israel did by placing our focus upon our sacrifices, tithes, and offerings, we're no longer worshiping or engaging the one true God in worship, but instead engaging with practices and rituals. On, on Saturday night in your home uh, or on Sunday morning in your car, let me encourage you to call out to God, to, to ask Him to be with you and with our congregation as we gather here to worship Him. Ask Him to give us broken and contrite hearts, to give us hearts filled with thanks for what He has done for us in Jesus Christ and to glorify His name as we gather. Well, on, on God's behalf, Amos has called to the cattle and once again warned them of the coming punishment through exile. In Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, we take something of a backward glance on history. We look back through the halls of history and the Lord's dealings with His people to see the purpose of the Lord's chastisement of His people in the past. So let's turn now and consider our second point, the purpose and the punishment. The purpose and the punishment. And as we do, read Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 11 with me. Amos 4, verses 6 through 11. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One, one field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet, you did not return to me declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. When we um, read prophecy in the scripture, often our first inclination is to think of it as something that's going to happen in the future. And indeed, much of the prophetic literature in the Bible is a prophet foretelling something that will happen. Amos has foretold of Israel's coming exile. But prophetic literature also has an element of, of foretelling. Um, in, in other words, sometimes a prophet is telling his hearers God's perspective on a present situation or a past event. In fact, that might be the majority of the character of prophecy in the Old Testament. And that's what we're getting here in these verses. Amos lists several past events where God acted. And he tells us God's perspective on those events. And then he ultimately tells us of Israel's lack of reaction to them. 
in, in all of these events, God was doing something. He was bringing chastisement and calamity upon His people because He desired that they would repent and return to Him. Now, we don't have time to run through each of these calamities in great depth. I've got a long footnote on some of these calamities. And if you want to talk with me about them at the door, I'd be happy to do that. My favorite one is the rain. You can ask me about that at the door. Anyway, um, send me an email. Find me after the service. Love to talk about these in depth. The, the bottom line is that God has ordered all of these calamities in the past, and He did so for a reason. Verse 6 describes a famine. Verse 7 is a calculated drought. Uh, verse 8 describes the calamities of blight, mildew, and locusts. Uh, verse 10 describes uh, another act of God, but this time it's connected to Egypt. God sent a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. In other words, that the people of Israel should have known that it was an act of God's punishment because it was just like what happened when God punished the Egyptians. A story that they were all familiar with given their history. Why would the Lord punish them after the manner of how He punished the Egyptians? Could it be that they were acting more like the enemies of God than God's chosen and beloved people? The punishment was also personal. Because the Lord killed Israel's young men with the sword and carried away their horses. If you can't tell, things are escalating, they're intensifying as we work our way through this history of God's past acts. In verse 11, we come to the final act mentioned here. God overthrew some of His people just as when He overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And here, there is a tacit comparison with the people of Israel to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Amos doesn't tie these specific past acts of God to specific events recorded in Israel's history. Especially in the last few acts mentions, Amos instead ties them together in an analogical manner. In making these analogical connections, Amos is probably working chronologically reverse, in a chronologically reverse direction, and descending down into the worst kinds of transgression found in the scriptures. So to, to put it differently, uh, as Amos is describing each of these powerful acts of God, they are increasing in intensity, but the wickedness with which they are associated with also descends progressively into a deeper pit of wickedness. It's only when we get to the bottom of the pit at Sodom and Gomorrah that we are, rather ironically, given a glimmer of hope. Uh, read verse 11 again. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet, you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Did you notice that, that glimmer of hope there in that verse? It's in that phrase, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, like a stick pulled out of the fire, not to let it burn. When God was raining down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, He rescued Lot. He plucked Lot out of the burning fire, raining down on Sodom. And here Amos tells us that when God did overthrow some in Israel, that he also rescued some. In other words, not everyone perished. Some were rescued. Some were plucked out. This note of grace and mercy underscores all the more the hardness of heart that we have sadly been hearing all throughout these verses. All throughout these verses we've been hearing, Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Here, when we come to the very last act of God described, we're told that even in the midst of God's punishment, He graciously and mercifully rescued and saved some of Israel. But even this kindness of God did not lead the people of Israel to repentance. 
This was the whole aim of God's actions in each of these acts. God performed these sovereign, divine, powerful acts for the explicit purpose of turning His people back to Himself. The reason for this discipline was God's desire for His people's repentance. In the face of calamity, in the face of hard providence in our lives, repentance may very well be the appropriate response. God was clearly attempting, endeavoring to use it in the life of the people of Israel. We heard earlier that He used it in the life of Susan. Hard providences actually drew her closer to the Lord. She responded differently than Israel did, praise God. Friends, brothers and sisters, you may have experienced really hard things in your life. Really difficult things. And those might be divine calls from God to you. That might have been God calling to you to turn away from your sin and to return to Him. We, we need to recognize that God plans to use these hard providences in our lives for our good. To make us more like Jesus Christ. These hard providences in the life of the ancient people of Israel were gracious overtures from God that they refused to hear and heed. God is saying to His children through them, Dear child, come back to me. You are wandering off. I love you and you're in danger. Come back to me. This is a guardrail I'm meaning to use in your life to keep you from going over the edge. We should remember that these are examples for us. We need to hear and heed God's gracious overtures to us to repent and to return to Him. Hard things in our lives are God calling us to come to Him and find rest. God is calling you and me to come to Him. And sometimes that is a hard kindness. But it is God being kind to us. Now, should we choose a different course than Israel? Uh, does this mean that when we repent and believe that everything in our life will turn out okay? Not necessarily. Think about Paul and what happened when he repented. His life actually got harder. I'm sure that reality is a real comfort to you right now. Um, but when Paul repented, when his life got harder, it also got infinite and eternally better. Because he was no longer a stranger, an enemy of God. He was no longer destined for hell. Instead, he was bound for heaven. And as strange as it may sound, repentance usually brings joy and suffering. Sometimes we suffer because the consequences of our past sins still remain. But sometimes we suffer because we have identified with Christ. And Jesus told us that those who follow him will not be greater than their master. They will suffer because he suffered. They will follow in his footsteps. In a real sense, the whole character and experience of the Christian life and the whole character and experience of the Christian church in its essence can be described as suffering with Christ. Friends, brothers and sisters, it is far better to suffer with and for Christ than in the end to suffer under his divine justice. Amos has revealed that the purpose in the punishment was for the people of Israel to return to God and repent. Strikingly, I don't think this is the greatest inducement for repentance in this chapter. The greatest inducement for repentance comes next in verses 12 and 13. 
The greatest reason for repentance is not what lies behind, but what lies ahead. A meeting with the Maker. So let's turn now and consider our third and final point, the meeting with the Maker. And as we do, read Amos chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Amos chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. These verses swing on the hinge of that first word, therefore, moving from what has preceded uh, this statement from the depraved damsels to the religious hypocrisy finally to the refusal to hear and repent and return to the Lord the Lord promises that He will act and what will the Lord do? well it seems like the Lord will visit upon His people the covenant curses that He enumerated and that they agreed to in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 uh, the curses enumerated there culminate in the curse of the exile from the land. It's a great passage of Scripture, a harrowing passage of Scripture, and Amos picks up on much of uh, Moses' language there. We'll talk about what the Lord will do in just a, a moment, but notice in verse 12 that Israel is to do something too. Israel is to prepare to meet her God. In, in Exodus chapter 19, when the people of Israel were preparing to receive the law, of God, they were instructed to prepare to meet their God. They were to humble themselves and be ready to hear. That seems to have been actually a decidedly more positive meeting than the meeting promised here. But perhaps there is more hope than first meets the eye here. Israel is exhorted to prepare to meet her God. Did you notice that? Israel, prepare to meet your God. Could this be Yet another invitation and overture from God to invite His people to come to Him and worship Him with a contrite heart. God has not cast off His people altogether. It's always a good time to repent and return to the Lord. In verse 13, we're given descriptions of God for which all praise, worship, and honor are due. God's creative power is proclaimed. He declares His thought to man and in doing so determines what is just. He rules over all and can make the morning dark if He so chooses. He is the God of hosts, the God of a powerful and divine army. Maybe this is an overture from God to His people to once again come to Him and repent. Sadly, we know that Israel has not in the past and when when He has revealed His glory and splendor. Moreover, He has promised that they will meet His judgment in exile. And that is sadly most likely what this meeting refers to. But even in the exile, God would preserve a remnant, a people for Himself. Nevertheless, they will meet their Maker in the exile. And He will say, depart from the land. But what does this mean for us? Well, the reality is, is that one day we will face our Maker too. But the stakes of our meeting are even higher. The people of Israel faced an earthly punishment when they met their maker in the exile, when they were sent out of their land. And as I said, even in that, God preserved a remnant. When we meet our maker, a decisive eternal decision will be made. Either entry 
into the promised land of heaven or exile, eternal exile from God's loving presence in hell. In the words of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. To all who hear my voice this morning, let me urge you not to refuse him who warns from heaven. Do not refuse God because he invites you to come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like ancient Israel, our hearts are filled with pride and wickedness. We have sinned against others by treating them as instruments instead of image bearers. And in doing so, we've sinned against God. We've been religious hypocrites. And we've tried to justify ourselves for God by our good works. The reality is, is that we're all hypocrites. Christians are especially people who admit it. They admit it that they're sinners and that they're flawed and fallen and in need of Jesus Christ. We've sinned against others. We've sinned against the Lord. We've said to God, look, look at my church attendance. Uh, look at my small group participation. Look at my work at the soup kitchen. Look at my work of building houses in Mexico for the poor. Look at all the things that I've done for you. or Just all the good things that I've done. And God tells us in the scriptures that he looks upon them and effectively says, all of your works, all of your works are as filthy rags in my sight. What you need to look at is the work of my son on your behalf and to trust in him. God sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth to rescue sinners like you and me. And he lived a life that none of us have lived, the life of perfect obedience to God. Where we have been sinful, he has been sinless. He was the only one who was ever without sin. And though he was perfectly sinless, he went to the cross and took upon himself the judgment, the sins, and the punishment due to the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in him. And three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving to us all that God's judgment has been carried out and justice satisfied. And Jesus calls us to escape God's judgment and to be rescued from the promise of exile and hell and believe that Jesus was judged for us. Jesus calls us to meet our Maker not in judgment, but in love. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to Him in faith today. And if you want to know more about what it means to be rescued and saved from God's judgment by Jesus, and I'd love to talk with you at the door after the service. There's nothing more important than you can think about than that coming meeting with your Maker. Will it be one of joy or sorrow? All of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be filled with eternal, unending joy. And I want you to know that joy. As we conclude, I want us to think through, to further think through how Amos 4 is relevant to us. I've tried to give glimpses of it throughout uh, the sermon, but I want to look at the main application of this text, square in the eye from the New Testament. So, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. 
How, and here we're thinking about how is Amos 4 relevant to us, the Christian church? What, what do we have to do with the ancient people of God and God's dealings with them? If you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 should be able to be on uh, page 957. Page 957. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Corinth. They were a New Testament church. They were a people upon whom the end of the ages had come. And yet Paul related the history of the Old Testament to them. You know, we, in our reading of the Old Testament today, feel so disconnected from it. That's such a long time ago. Such ancient literature. But we shouldn't feel so disconnected from the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul shows us why. So listen as I read from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers... Interesting family identification there, isn't it? I want you to know, brothers, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall in 1st Corinthians 10 Paul makes a remarkable connection he tells the church in Corinth to look back to the past and to learn from the ancient people of God Learn from the mistakes of others. You don't have enough time. Won't live long enough to make them all yourself. Paul tells them that they are just like the wilderness generation, facing the same trials, same temptations, same tests. He urges them to chart a different course, to learn from Israel's sins. He urges them not to desire evil as they did. And I wonder if you notice what Paul said in verse 6. He said that these things took place as examples for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, get a clear-eyed view of this fact that God organized, ordered, and ordained Old Testament history for you. People were overthrown in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. As an example to you, actual human beings, hundreds of them, died. As an example, for you. They did not make it into the promised land. And all of this occurred as a warning to you. To teach you not to desire evil as they did. To teach you that sin displeases God. That it is dangerous and it leads to death. In view of what happened, Paul effectively 
says to the congregation in Corinth. Turn away from the sins of idolatry. Repent of your sexual immorality. Repent of putting Christ to the test. And repent of your grumbling and complaining. Repent of your faithlessness. In the words of Amos 4, Paul is saying, return to God. These things happened for you. And they were preserved in sacred scripture for your instruction. So listen. Heed God's instruction. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul, he was reflecting upon the wilderness generation in 1 Corinthians 10. He was reflecting upon the many who failed to make it into the promised land, but he could have just as easily reflected upon the people whom Amos was speaking to. They, like the wilderness generation, forfeited the inheritance that they were to receive. For they too were filled with deceitfulness and sin. And we need to hear Amos' words for the ancient people of God. For they were written down for our instruction and learning. They were written down not simply so that we might be instructed on how bad the ancient people of God were. Rather, they were written down so that we might be instructed on how badly we need to be rescued from our sin. Amos' words weren't written down so that we might learn how the people of Israel failed to repent of their sins. They were written down so that we might learn that we need to repent of ours. As we confess our sin and endeavor to turn away from them, we must be sure that we turn to God in Christ. This is what it means to return to Him. That was the whole call of that section. Return to me. Yet you did not return to me. It's an implicit call from God saying to His children, come to me. Come to me. So when we turn away from our sin, brothers and sisters, be sure that you return to your Savior. That you come to Him, trusting in Him. In the words of our last song, we need to believe that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And that sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose not just one, not just two, just ten, not just a hundred, but all of their guilty states come to Christ in faith. Let's pray together.